We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 21, and we may read some verses from the beginning of the chapter. Revelation, chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely, and so on. Again, may God bless to us this uh, short reading of his word. Now, we have been considering the beautiful description that is given to us of the Lamb's wife, Christ's bride, not just the redeemed church, but the sanctified and the glorified church. We are shown the church in all the beauty of her holy perfection presented by Christ to himself and satisfied that she is exactly as he desires her to be. Now, when we're coming to the end of this book, we find that we are still listening to the voice of the one who speaks upon the throne. We emphasized this last Lord's Day. Verse 5 again of this chapter, He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Now this is the same voice that is speaking right through the whole book of the Revelation and indeed speaks right through the whole of Scripture. We have the authority of God behind what is stated here. Behold, I, I am doing something, and then I have done it or completed. I make all things new. Now, why is this being said in the context? John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, very often, when we approach the Word of God, sometimes people begin, or without thinking, they imagine they're beginning at the beginning. And they start with the fall. Well, we're all sinners. We need a Savior. Why is that? Because of the fall, because Adam sinned against God. But as you've heard me say before, and I say it again and emphasize it, no matter what it is that we consider, we've got to go to where God directs us to the beginning. And the beginning was not the fall. In the beginning, God. Before there's any creatures around, God is. 
And God is the immutable, eternal God. His purposes are eternal. His thoughts are eternal. His mind and his intentions are eternal. And if we are to understand anything, we must go to the mind of God. We must return to God's thinking and then the revelation to us of what he thinks. That's why we went to that chapter and we want to return to it in Genesis. Genesis simply means the beginning anyway, the book of beginnings. What do we read? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, when we come to the end of the book, the whole scripture, we come to the end of Revelation, the end of the canon of scripture, it's exactly the same voice that was speaking in Genesis 1, and that same voice says, Behold, now I make all things new. And John says, I saw what God had made. He made a new heaven and a new earth. And what is more, the former things were passed away. And we saw how the earth and the heaven fled from the presence of the one who was on the throne. But if we are to understand the new heavens and the new earth, Well, we need to go back to the original earth and the original heaven. And then we see against what happened at the fall and how the creation, as Paul tells the Romans in chapter 8, it's now groaning. That creation, the first creation, is groaning to its creator because of the effects of sin and the curse that came upon it. It is now groaning. Now, God didn't hear it groaning at the beginning. God looked upon it, and we're told that this is his verdict. We read verse (coughs) 1 of Genesis 2. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. They were finished. There was nothing more to be added. It didn't need any renovation. It was finished. It was completed. And all the host of them, everything was there. It was all created. And what do we read? That God saw, verse 31 of chapter 1, God saw everything that he had made. Everything. And behold, it was very good. The word in the original is tob, and it can mean beautiful, truly beautiful. And God is saying, when he looked on his creation, it wasn't just complete, but it was beautiful, it was attractive, it was appealing It satisfied God himself. He didn't have to inquire of the angels, what do you think? He didn't have to consult with them, can it be improved upon? Is there anything you can suggest that I can add to it? God was fully satisfied, it's what I want. Now, God said at one point during this wonderful work, He said, verse 26 of chapter 1, Let us make man in our image. Now, God's speaking not only of the earth and the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, whatever, but now included in all that was good and was beautiful and was satisfying to God is this creature called man. God said, let us make man in our image. 
Now, we must keep that in mind. Not just make man beautiful, or make him attractive, or make him good, but make him in our image. So that when the heavens and the earth are finished and all the host of them, everything's completed, God not only looks in the sun or the moon or the earth or the seas or the trees or whatever, he also looks in this creature called man. And God is satisfied. He's the perfect image bearer. He is carrying the beauty of the image of his creator. God can look on him. Yes, he's just as I want him to be. He is perfect as a creature. God can look at all the creation. There's my image bearer. There's the one that bears my image. Now then, what does God do with this image bearer? And keep that in mind. It's a good term. God's image bearer. Before he fell, before he sinned, he is God's image bearer. Now where does God, what does God do with this image bearer? We're told in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 7, the Lord God formed man (coughs) of the dust of the ground breathed into his nostrils the bread of life, and man became a living soul. He is a living soul bearing the image of God. Now, it is important to remember God is invisible. So we cannot think when we talk about the image bearer that his physical form the, visi- the visible form of man, that's, that's bearing the image of God. God doesn't have a, a physical image. He doesn't bear an image like that. God is a spirit, perfectly spirit. So you see, it is the spirit of man that really reflects the image of God. It is what he is as the created spirit in the image of God or his soul, perhaps we might say, the functioning faculties of his soul. And really it's what is invisible. That is the truest reflection of God's glory. And that is something when we come to the doctrine of regeneration, when when we have Paul speaking in uh, 2 Corinthians there, In the fifth chapter, when he speaks of any man being Christ, he is a new creation. If he's in Christ, he is the new image bearer. He bears the image of his creator. Now, that's what a real Christian is. Whatever other definitions you may try to apply to one who's uh, claiming to be a born-again Christian. A Christian is an image-bearer. And the image that he bore at the beginning is to be restored and magnified to such an extent that the former things actually pass away. And God says, Behold, I make all things new. When John was speaking, thinking of what lay before him as a glorified saint, he didn't even have the ability to put into words what he hoped to be. It was beyond him. And I don't believe that the child of God can fully comprehend what lies in store for him or her when they are brought to glory. But going back here to Genesis 2, God creates this image bearer. And God is satisfied, this is my image bearer. And what's he called? Or who is he called? 
He's called the first Adam. The first Adam is my image bearer. Now when we might jump just for a moment over to Romans, or First Corinthians, I should say, the first epistle uh, to the Corinthians, chapter 15. And you will find there, Paul is contrasting, as it were, two Adams. First uh, Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 45, so it is written, Before Paul wrote this epistle to the Corinthians, it was previously written. It was previously inscripturated. So it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. That's exactly what we read. The last Adam, in contrast, was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam was made a living soul. But the last Adam is made not a quickened spirit, but a quickening spirit. A quickening spirit is something different to a quickened spirit. He is the quickening spirit. He brings forth... A new race almost, you might say, a whole new generation. He is the Adam, uh, as Paul tells the Romans, as in Adam all die. Here is the second Adam, in this Adam all live. They all died in the first Adam, but the the last Adam is the quickening spirit. And now, those that were dead in Adam, all died in him. Out of the dead race of Adam, there is quickened or resurrected or brought to life this new seed from the last Adam. But we read verse 46 of 1 Corinthians 15, How be it? That was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first Adam, or the first man, is of the earth, earthy. Well, he was made out of the dust of the earth. He's earthy. The second man, or the last Adam, is the Lord from heaven. And then Paul writes this very important truth. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, when Adam's first son was born, he brought him forth in his own likeness, or his own image. He brought him forth in his own likeness. Now, what is Paul telling the Corinthians? The last Adam, who is a quickening spirit, he brings forth a race of living souls. He is the real image bearer. He is the true, in fact, Paul, when he's writing to the Hebrews, says he's the very express image. He's the express image. You can't get a better image. It's impossible. Now, what is Paul saying? Including himself, we have borne the image of the first Adam. And we are fallen with him and now bear a sinful image. But he says, in the second, or the last Adam rather, what do we find? Those who are in him bear the image of the heavenly. Now that's something to think about. 
we bear and we shall bear in fullness of glory the image, not a mere vague likeness, but the image. Now the child of God who's not interested in bearing that image, there's something wrong. Something very seriously wrong. And if we think there's such a thing as the new creation, and it doesn't have to bear the image of Christ, we don't know what regeneration really means. The image of Christ is the true image of God in his people, born because Christ is a quickening spirit. Now, going back to Genesis. What did God do with this image bearer in the old creation? He created the heaven and the earth. And it's very interesting to see the stages in the creation of God. Verse 3, going back to Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then look at what we read in verse 5. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now you think of it, we speak regularly of day and night. Where did the idea come from? Where did the naming of the day and the night come from? God called the light day. God said this is day. And the darkness, he said, that's night. Now, how amazing right now in all our, in our 21st century with all the learning, men with all their intelligence, they can't change that. God said, the light is going to be day. I'm calling it day. And he says, I am calling the, the darkness. I'm calling that night. Then we read verse 6. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made a firmament. Verse 8, and God called the firmament heaven. God called it heaven. He didn't leave it, as we'd see in a moment, he didn't consult anyone. He said, this is heaven. What I've created It's called heaven. What I've created is called day. What I've created is called uh, night. And uh, this is what I call heaven. Verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. Now notice where we get heaven and earth from. From God. He says, this is what I call earth. This is what I call heaven. This is what I identify as the creator. This is what I purpose is heaven. This is what I have created as earth. The earth and the heaven. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But you will see that (coughs) God also gives these titles, as it were, to the heaven and the earth that he created. They're distinct, they're different, but God said this is what is to be called heaven. Verse 8, notice, God called the firmament heaven, different to verse 1. You see, it's capitalized in verse 8. It's as though this is the title. It's not just that I've made it. I'm calling it this. And then, notice in verse 10, God called the dry land earth, capitalized in distinction from verse 1, where it is just simply earth. You see what God is doing? He's putting an emphasis upon heaven and earth. They are somehow special. Now, when God does all this, he calls 
This is heaven. This is earth. That's how it's to be. But then God does something quite peculiar whenever, in the, in the light of that, whenever he creates Adam. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. He didn't say, Adam, what would you call the earth? Or Adam, what would you call the heavens above? He said, that's what it is. And every time then you go through the scriptures, when we come to anything that God has to say about heaven or earth, we are immediately bound to go back to see what was God talking about. What's he talking about now? Is this the heaven that he created and identified? Is this the earth that he created and said it was to be earth? Or is he talking about something else? Now when it comes to other parts of the creation, namely the beasts of the field, (coughs) God didn't say, well... I've created this beast. This is a kangaroo. This is this creature. This is an elephant. God didn't do that. Instead, he brought them all to Adam to see what Adam would call them. Now, whatsoever Adam called every living creature... That was the name thereof. Can't you see the extent of the image bearing? He has a mind that is functioning in perfect harmony with the mind of God. So much so that God brings all these beasts, he doesn't bring Adam here and make him sit down and say, now I'm going to bring as I brought to Noah all the beasts. I'm going to bring them before you, Adam, and you listen carefully. I'm going to tell you what they're called. He didn't do that. God listened to Adam. And Adam is not contradicted once. God said, Whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. God was satisfied. You've got it absolutely right, Adam. That's what I would call it too. If it's an elephant, Adam, it's an elephant. If it's a kangaroo, Adam, it's a kangaroo. That's it. God was satisfied with the intelligence, with the wisdom with how Adam applied his understanding and his knowledge. And God was satisfied because the mind of God and the mind of Adam were in perfect harmony. What an amazing image bearer he is. He can think as it were in his limited capacity as a creature. He's thinking as it were as the reformers would say, God's thoughts after him. But now, why did Adam call them as he did? Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. He did it. Now he did it because he understood the makeup. He understood the temperament, the characteristics of these creatures. Now, 
God then, as we were singing from Psalm 8, appointed him Lord over all these creatures. He's to rule over them. Now, if he's to rule over them, he needs to understand them. He needs to know how to do that. He needs to know what he's ruling over. He needs to know something about these creatures, their needs, their wants, their characteristics, their natures. And so he names them. But then God did something else. He gave Adam another task of naming. You go down chapter 2. God, in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now as he had brought the beast to Adam, now he brings someone else. He brings another creation, and he brings her to Adam. Now, why did God do that? Because we're told in verse 20, For Adam there was not found an help meet for him. These creatures, none of them could fully satisfy the needs and the desires of Adam created in the image of God. So then God meets this need and God provides a helpmeet, a helper meet for Adam. Now he creates this woman. And God can look on her and say she's very good because she's part of his creation. But he brought her to Adam. And what did he say? Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We're told, verse 22, he made a woman. The same God who brought all the beasts to Adam. Now, Adam, what are you going to call them? He does so. Now he brings this new creation woman. Now, Adam. What skill do you have now? What knowledge do you possess? You're the image bearer of God. What will you call her? Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Aisha. She shall be called woman. Just as the elephant is called elephant, the zebra is called a zebra, this is called a woman. Now then, he tells us why he called her a woman. Because she was taken out of the man. She's my bone, she's my flesh. She shall be called a woman. Now, doesn't that again bring us back to the image bearer, made in the image of God, thinking in harmony and agreement with God, she shall be called woman. When I look upon her, when I exercise my mind, when I think of this creature presented to me by, by God, she shall be called woman. Now you go with me for a moment over to the 
first epistle that Peter writes. <coughs> and he gives this instruction to husbands and wives. First Peter chapter 3, <coughs> verse 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, that's the wives, according to knowledge. According to knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Is it just she's a woman? I know she's a woman. I recognize her as a woman. According to knowledge. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of God that your prayers be not hindered. What will hinder the prayers? Ignorance. Ignorance of the relationship between husband and wife. Dwell with her according to knowledge. What was Adam doing when he named Eve? Said she'd be called woman. She's called Eve because she's the mother of all living. Adam was living now with, with the mother of all living. He was naming her because he knew her. He had knowledge. He was dwelling with her according to knowledge. And God knew, Adam, you know. Your naming is right. It's correct. And when Peter says then that this is how husbands and wives are to dwell together, the husband is <coughs> to have the knowledge of who his wife is and what she is. She is the weaker vessel. Therefore, he is obligations regarding her because that is so. But what happens after the fall? After the fall, our catechism reminds us of something. We lost the knowledge of God. That's why there's problems. That's why the balance is upset. That is why marriages break up. That's why you have problems. Because of sin affecting the faculties that Adam had and were functioning in harmony with the mind of God. When he sinned, he lost that. Yes, his faculties continued to work. They functioned. But not anymore as the image bearer before he fell. Now then, what does grace do? Grace recovers and grace restores what Adam lost. And that's why grace is needed in every Christian marriage, in every Christian home. And there has to be this acknowledgement. Because of our sin, we don't know what we need to know. We don't know what is essential. And we have to turn to God and ask him to teach us and ask him to enlighten us that our prayers be not hindered. But now going back again to Genesis, remember why we're considering this first creation, the first heaven and the first earth, because it is to pass away. But there is to be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, what did God do? Verse 8 of Genesis 2. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man 
whom he had formed. God didn't create Adam and then set him down in the midst of all this beautiful creation. Now, Adam, take a good look out. Where would you like to go? It's all beautiful anyway. You have every provision, every need will be met, Adam. No, no. God, the Lord God, planted a garden. Eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He prepared a home for Adam. He prepared a dwelling place in the midst of all the beauty and the grandeur of his great creation. He prepared, as it were, he planted a garden for Adam. And, of course, for Eve as well. But there's God put him. God was caring for him. God was providing for him. God loved Adam. God cared for Adam. It's his image bearer. And he put his image bearer in the place of his own divine appointment right in that garden. Then look down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it. Isn't it amazing? Even the little children grow up and they remember, if they remember about this event, Why was Adam put in the garden? Well, he was put in it to dress it, to look after it. But that falls short of what the purpose of God was. He put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and also to keep it. He was to be, as it were, the sentinel on guard, guarding that garden making sure nothing comes into it that shouldn't be there. To not only dress it, but to keep it, to guard it. Now, when we come to chapter 3, something very seriously happens. Because the relationship that God created between Adam and Eve hasn't been observed. Chapter 3, verse 1, Neither serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Who called this creature the serpent? Wasn't it Adam? Why did he call it the serpent? Because it was more subtle than any beast of the field. That's why he gave it that name. Now, how did the serpent get into the garden then? Isn't there a guard on it? Hasn't Adam been put in there to dress it and to keep it? So he is there to ensure the serpent doesn't get in. He has named them. The serpent is more subtle than any beast of the field. He looked in all the other creatures, and when he comes to this serpent, my, my, he knows what kind of a creature it is. And what do we read? Verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Adam, where are you? How did this creature get into Eve? You're supposed to be keeping a watch on this garden. You're supposed to be keeping it. The serpent has come in more subtle than any other beast of the field that God had made. And after God now comes to confront Adam and the woman 
and the serpent. God had to then restore the balance and restore the order that had been neglected and had been dismissed. And so what did God say? Verse 16, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband and Eve. He shall rule over thee. Now there's a tendency to think this was almost part of the curse. God wasn't going to curse the man or the woman. He cursed the ground for their sakes. But he said, Eve, Adam, you must obey and maintain the order that I instituted. He shall rule. Now, Adam, he, of course, we're told, blamed Eve for what had happened. What did Adam say? She gave unto me. Now, that was not the order that God intended and had given from the beginning. We're told... How the serpent approached Eve, and he was saying, verse 4 of chapter 3, The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Indeed you won't die. Ye shall have your eyes open. Now, some people get some strange notions that Adam... And Eve, until they actually sinned, somehow or other, their eyes were not open. Then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, or as it should be, God, ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. Now, what image did both Adam and Eve bear? The image of God. The devil comes along and he tempts Eve. You can't be satisfied with that, Eve. You have to be something better than just merely an image bearer. You want to have more. You want to be like God. Now what is the devil doing? He is pointing the mind of Eve, or the woman, to the character of God who rules. He shall be like God. You shall have power and authority far beyond merely reflecting the glory of God. You shall have a superior glory. God doth know this. That's why he's forbidden you. God knows perfectly well that if your eyes are open and they're not our physical eyes, what are the eyes of our intelligence? The eyes of our reasoning? The eyes of our understanding? And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Ah, Eve, And Adam both were created in a state of innocency. Now they speak of children being little innocent children. What do they mean when, what do we mean when we speak of innocent children? They don't know what evil is. They only know what it is to be good little children. They're innocent of what is wicked and innocent of what is evil and innocent of what is bad. Adam and Eve were created, and remember this, when Paul, as we've noticed, was 
writing to the Corinthians of the first Adam and the last Adam. Both Adams were innocent. The first Adam was created not as a sinner, but innocent, without any sin whatever. The last Adam was the Son of God in our nature. What was testified of him? He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. So before the fall, there's this likeness as the image bearers, the earthly and the heavenly image bearers. They are not guilty of of sin. There's no sin laid upon them, whatever. And it is also important to note, when we're thinking of this, when Adam expressed or exhibited his knowledge of the creature that God brought to him, and he said, she shall be called woman. Why? Because this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Over to the epistle that Paul writes to the Ephesians. And there in chapter 5, you have Paul speaking again here in this chapter of the relationship between husband and wife, Christian husbands and wives particularly. And then in verse 26, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Paul writes this, Husbands. Love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word. My, my, that's something for husbands to think about. Because when a woman marries a man, she ought to be getting better every day. He ought to be such an influence upon her that she actually improves spiritually. Because she is to be loved as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for it. For what reason? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself. Now you remember God brought the woman that he had created to man. He presented the woman to Adam. He presented her in all her perfection without any sin. Now here we have Christ sanctifying his bride, his church, that he might present her to himself, because he's God. He presents her to himself. And he says, this is my bride, this is the church that I died for, this is the church that I've washed, that I've sanctified by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy, and without blemish. That is the intention of Christ. Not to have a church covered with blemishes and full of inconsistencies and all kinds of uh, things that destroy her reputation and her glory and her beauty in the presence of her heavenly husband. No, his intention is the church that he loved, to have her presented to himself in holy, heavenly perfection. Then Paul goes on (coughs) to write, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. And then listen to what he says. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. How can that be, you ask? Is that not strange? He loves himself and he loves his wife. Well, that's exactly what Paul says. 
For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. Why? Listen. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. What did Adam say when God brought Eve to him? This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. What does Christ say of his bride? Exactly what Paul says. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. This is the image bearer that God put into the garden, into the old creation. What a glorious creation it was. But for the sake of time, we might just read one, well, maybe two texts. you find them in the prophecy of Isaiah. And the prophecy of Isaiah 65, or 50, I should say, the chapter, uh, I should say 65, chapter 65 of, of Genesis, or Isaiah, verse 17. And we're not looking at the context, merely drawing your attention to the promise, the great promise that Peter speaks about. We, according to his promise, Peter says, look for a new heaven and a new earth. Where's the promise? Here it is. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into my... There will be such a contrast that the former heaven and earth will appear as nothing in a sense in comparison. I create, who's saying this? The one, the same voice that speaks in Revelation 21 from the throne. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. What an amazing Promise, but Peter says that's the reason we look for the new heavens and the new earth. Just finally, in conclusion, chapter 66 of Isaiah, verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remember. This new heaven and new earth will never be corrupted, will never have anything entering into it that defiles, and it will continue before me. I will not replace it. The new heavens and the new earth, God will be so satisfied. It'll be so glorious. You hear people going around saying, my, the the majesty of the mountains, the wonder of creation, how wonderfully God has made it. You know what God says? The new heavens and the new earth will be so amazing, so glorious, that what I created at the beginning will not even come into remembrance. It will be so glorious. And then you see, the last Adam will present the bride to himself in the midst of all that glory, it won't be in the Garden of Eden. It'll be in a more glorious garden. Christ and his bride made perfect. And you and I have never known a, a perfection. Not one of us here really know what perfection is. We might think we do. We look up a dictionary and we think what, we know what perfection is. We don't. The sight that John saw is something that until we see it, we cannot fully appreciate it. And yet that's what God has promised. 
Oh, the devil did his dirty work in the garden. Brought such sorrow and pain into this first creation. But he will not get into the second creation because he's already been cast into the lake of fire. He won't come to tempt the church anymore. He will be forever out of sight. And the church in Christ, when Paul says, we shall be with him where he is. Even Paul probably, even though he was inspired, couldn't grasp in his unglorified state the wonder of what he was even speaking about. That's the hope of the image bearer, the hope of the child of God, the image bearers of Christ. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we thank thee for the revelation of thy great promises. We cannot fully comprehend them, even begin to understand them. But they are there. They are exceeding great and precious promises. May every poor child of God, how often we mourn that we are not the image bearers that we ought to be, but we rejoice that one day, as thou hast promised, all thy dear people will be perfectly like Christ, perfectly bearing the image of their God. Bless thy truth then, encourage thy people, pardon us, receive us for Christ's sake. Amen.